So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 to 20 says this. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So when Paul and Timothy paid a brief visit to Ephesus, and when they realized that the church there was in a state of, uh, of ill health, spiritually speaking, the church in Ephesus would have, you know, Ephesus itself was the fourth or fifth largest city uh, in the known world at that point, and the church was likely to be, to have been a first century megachurch with multiple locations all across uh, the city. Um, a huge number of, of elders in that church, uh, no doubt. But when they paid a visit there, they realized quickly that it was encountering major problems. Um, and as a result, Paul did two things, just briefly. Firstly, uh, as we learn from these verses, he puts Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church. And I think we can take from that that of all those who were teaching false doctrine, they were the ringleaders. They were the guys with most profile, and they needed to be dealt with. This was always in keeping, actually, with what Paul had predicted would happen. So in, in Acts chapter 20... And in verse 30, he's speaking to just the elders of the church in Ephesus at this point. And he says to them, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. He kind of saw it coming. And so arriving in Ephesus on this occasion, he realizes that's what Hymenaeus and Alexander have done. They have risen up. They have distorted the truth, they've distorted the gospel, they've distorted the word of God, and they've drawn away disciples after themselves. And this does need uh, drastic action. So the first thing Paul does is put Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church. That's put here as, I, I handed them over to Satan. That's his way of explaining in very stark language, well, you're out of the church now, you're, you're out of the body of Christ and so really, you're, you're in the sphere of Satan's influence. That's what he, he means by it. I, he put them out of uh, the church. And in, in his second letter to Timothy, um, Paul refers to Hymenaeus, which is an unusual name, so he's talking about the same guy. He refers to Hymenaeus' teaching as being that which spreads like gangrene. Has anybody had gangrene? That's good. Um, and I pray that that will always be the case. Um, someone who has had gangrene is Sir Ranulph Fiennes. He's an uh, eminent uh, explorer. He's, an, he's quite an old guy now, but I think he's still going about crazy adventures. And because he's gone on adventures into Antarctica or the Arctic, and uh, I think he was attempting at one point to travel across Antarctica, I think, through the, through the winter, Antarctica's version of winter. 
traveled from one side to another. But he couldn't continue. He, what, doing his training, he realized, I've caught frostbite because he, uh, he had to fix his ski again. And he couldn't do that with his outer gloves on. And he couldn't do that with his inner gloves on. So just using his bare hands in minus whatever temperature. He, I won't go into details. It's all right. Family show, family show. Um, his hands, he realizes one of them is gone. Now what gangrene is like, a little bit like frostbite, is blood has just stopped circulating in that part of the body. Um, and so I think Ranulph Fiennes does have some missing fingers as a result. It's just, if that happens, you, you, you can't wait you can't wait to see what will happen. If you wait to see what will happen, if you have gangrene, then you're just going to lose more and more of your body. Um, because it's, it's death. There's no life flowing through that part of the body. And Paul was saying that of Hymenaeus' teaching. It's, it's death. Through the body, there's no life at that point. You can't, you can't wait and see what will happen. It's not some subtle treatment. It's drastic action is needed. Uh, to, to, to cut it out. That's what he's, he's done. Their teachings seem to be, or certainly Hymenaeus, uh, we see from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, that the, the resurrection had already taken place. Now that might be another way of saying the resurrection had never really happened. In other words, this is it, folks. There's no future hope of resurrection. It's, it's just an image. It's just a picture. It's just a metaphor. It's as though we've got a new life. Um, we're, we're not waiting for resurrection to happen. And, and therefore, perhaps it's, it, it undermines the very fact that Jesus himself was physically resurrected. Now, for Paul, he recognizes this as blasphemy. So I hope, notice that even though he's putting them out of the church, he hopes that they'll be taught. He hopes that they'll learn something. He hopes they'll learn not to blaspheme. How can he say that? Well, earlier on in the chapter, Paul says of himself, I was once a blasphemer. What does he mean? I denied that Jesus rose from the dead. And I was going around persecuting anybody who said otherwise. In other words, there's persecution, persecution was attached with saying Jesus rose again, and therefore he is Lord. So Hymenaeus and the others just diluting and distorting uh, the message. And it just brings, brings death. It destroys faith. It means that the body is just going to die. If, if that teaching is allowed to run through. So that's the first thing he does. The second thing that Paul does to try and combat this disease is he left Timothy in Ephesus. And so we saw at the beginning of the chapter in verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine. So it wasn't just Hymenaeus and Alexander. There were some other guys as well teaching the same rubbish and he's saying, no, you need to be there to command certain people not to teach false doctrine and also, therefore, to, to set out sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, the real gospel. And that's what he's mentioned right at the beginning, right in the middle of this chapter in verse 11, the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he has entrusted uh, to me and also which Paul was then entrusting to Timothy. Command certain people not to teach but you, Timothy, you teach. You teach the glorious gospel. And it's like he's saying to Timothy himself, keep your own life orbiting, orbiting the true gospel. Some people like Hymenaeus and Alexander, they've drifted. 
their lives were no longer uh, centered on Jesus, no longer centered on the gospel, and so they drifted. Now, you might be wondering which household object is in the bag uh, to be a sophisticated illustration during this message. It is the whole world. The whole world in a bag for life. Or, one, two, three, got the whole world. Oh, yeah. So here is our planet, uh, represented here in this globe in my hands. And it's spinning. I think it's spinning that way. Um, And there's life on this planet because it's in orbit around the sun. Uh, Maybe it's not spinning that fast. I don't know. I'll try and slow it down a bit. Um, if If it weren't... Now... For now, this lectern is representing the sun, okay? You've got to use your imagination a little bit more with that one, all right? But the reason there's life on our planet is because it's in orbit around the sun. If it were going any faster than it's going, it would zoom off into space, and after dodging a few other planets in our solar system, it wouldn't come across anything else almost forever, such as the scale of the universe. But it's going at this speed, which is apparently 67,000 miles an hour uh, around the sun, Sorry, yeah. So what's a good time for doing, the, doing 10K? Anyone, anyone here done, done a 10K run? What would be a good time? Like an hour? Like the, no one's daring to say, but I'm sure some people are in this room. <laughs> no one wants to say. Okay. 45 minutes. Okay, 45 minutes would be a good time to do uh, 10K. The sun does that whilst spinning in a third of a second, or something like that. Anyway, so it's going around the Earth. It's going around the Sun. And the reason that life can happen here is because of the Sun. Um, I'm going to just pop him over there again for the moment. Paul is saying... Actually, I'm going to keep hold of it. Keep your own life focused on the Gospel, okay? The Sun, think Gospel. The Word of Truth makes us wise for salvation. So Timothy, remember, verse 3, as I urged you, stay in Ephesus. The gospel, Timothy, the gospel was at stake in Ephesus. Stay in Ephesus. And then later on, in verses 18 to 20, he's saying, Timothy, my son, keep yourself focused and centered on the gospel. Observe, see what's happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander It looked like they started well, but there came a point when they started to drift. So if the sun wasn't there, somehow, miraculously, the earth would no longer be orbiting around anything. It would just travel in a straight line, like I said, forever. And it would drift. How long do you think it would take until there's no life left on this planet? The, 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 The planet itself would still exist. Would it take a week? For, uh, for us to suddenly freeze? Maybe if it travelled, it could find something else in the solar system to, uh, to orbit around. Jupiter's quite big, isn't it? So this table can represent Jupiter. Loads of things orbit around Jupiter. Jupiter has loads of moons. But there's no life on those moons. And sometimes what can happen subtly, even to godly Christian leaders like Hymenaeus, Alexander and Timothy is a subtle drift can take place where the gospel is no longer the center. The gospel is no longer what my life is focused on. The gospel is no longer the key 
uh, uh, principle around which I make all my decisions in life, I found something else. I found something else to revolve around. How long is it going to take for life to uh, disappear completely from that planet, planet? Paul, now writing to Timothy, is in a sense is reminding him and also warning him, Timothy, don't drift. Stay in orbit around the gospel. And he uses a different, uh, a different image, the image of shipwreck, to, decide, to, to, uh, to explain what happened to Alexander and Hymenaeus. Now maybe you can survive a shipwreck. Paul has hope that they might be restored, that they might learn, that may, they might be taught not to blaspheme. Maybe one day they'll come back to the gospel. But for now, it's been made very clear. They've made it clear and Paul's made it clear. You've gone. It's a powerful warning. And so what concerns us today is this. How do we avoid spiritual shipwreck? How do we avoid drifting away from the gospel into some lifeless condition? Yes, we'll still, we'll, we'll still be here somewhere, but like this, we'll just turn to some dry, frozen moon if it doesn't orbit around the sun. Spiritually speaking, the same happens to us if we drift away from the gospel. And perhaps for Timothy, in that initial shock, when that initial showdown with Hymenaeus and Alexander took place, when Paul first said to him, I'm going to leave you here, Timothy, maybe at that point he's kind of got grace, he's got strength for it, to deal with the initial short, sharp, intense crisis. But in the passing of time, maybe now with Hymenaeus and Alexander gone, there's just the odd passing comment that brings, that brings discouragement. Maybe now, with Paul gone, people might just say, well, why didn't Paul stay? If it's such a big problem here in, in Ephesus, what we, what we were listening to, what we were being taught, why didn't Paul stay? Why did he leave you, Timothy? What have you got about you? Maybe somebody else could just be throwing in another comment. Actually, I think Hymenaeus had some interesting ideas. I don't know that Paul gave him enough of a hearing. He just jumped to a conclusion. I think we should pay a little bit more attention to him. Actually, even though he's been put out of the church, I've invited him over to my house. So we're just going to have an additional meeting over here. And Timothy's like, oh my goodness. Months down the line or weeks down the line. He had grace to get him through that initial shock or maybe adrenaline. But now with time going on, more kind of low-level discouragements are just perhaps just causing him to, to lose focus, to drift, to feel a bit jaded in him, himself. And sometimes that can be the same for us. We can have grace, we can have strength to stay very gospel-focused when we're met by a full-on, hostile, spiritual challenge or attack, some short, sharp crisis is, is unavoidable. We can't, we, can't, um, we can't be anything but struck by it and it attempts to knock us back. But we hold on to God and we hold on to the gospel and we persevere 
through the short, sharp crisis. But then when the low-level things come, it's actually at that point we're in danger of risking. I wonder if that's the experience for anyone here. You may have been through a season, maybe short-lived season, but of intense confrontation and difficulty in the workplace and it caused you to hold on to God and call out to him and stay very gospel-centered or it could have been um, uh, bereavement or redundancy or life-threatening illness that had you in hospital for a little while or intense persecution and you get through it but then when you get the other side of it it's just the little things it's the subtle stuff that can just knock you off balance and take, you, uh, take us away, cause us to drift. And in, in that situation, we can start to orbit round something else. It can be subtle stuff, but we orbit round something else. There are a few things that Paul mentions elsewhere in his letters to Timothy that, that could be those alternative centers of gravity. It could be reputation. That could have been the case... Uh, For these false teachers, we saw in verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law. They want the reputation. They want a certain role. They want prestige. They're concerned with their image. And so they're starting to drift off course and revolve around something else. Later on in the letter, he'll talk about um, uh, how the love of money is the root of so many different kinds of evil. And we can think of of love of money as... That person who racks up astronomical debt through gambling in Las Vegas. That's love of money. Love of money means just that our life is centered around a different governing principle. There might be people who look very, very prudent, very, very good with money, but that's the issue. That it's, it, money is, about, is that which every decision is centered around. Money provides the center. Money provides the focus, or if not money, then something associated with it, like aspiring to a particular lifestyle, um, or other, uh, other successes. Uh, if it's not money, it could be uh, something else. It could be something to do with physical fitness. I'm not sure whether Paul is, is mentioning this um, as specifically another center, but it's just interesting what he says in chapter 4, And verse 8, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So I think we can agree with Paul, can't we? Physical training, physical exercise, the discipline that brings, has some value. We could say it has many, many values, many benefits. But sometimes in our minds... That verse could get switched around. What do I mean? It could be this. For godliness has, is of some value, but physical training has value for all things. So it could just be subtle things, but we start to make decisions about, about centering our life somewhere else. Is it wrong to go to a gym? No, of course it isn't. But... Is that almost like what's making the decisions? Is that the, is that the number one priority? Well, there's, a, there's some value in coming here. There's, there's some value in gathering together in the church. But where I really get my life from is 
down at the gym. We'll thank the Lord for the gym. But it's possibly our best uh, cultural version of a temple. It's got its own priesthood. You pay your tithe. There's regular events. It's a great place to meet people. It can, it can become a temple. It can become a place of, of worship. We can, we can drift. And it can be subtle. And there are many benefits. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have a good reputation. But what's the center of our life? What's the center of our decision making? If, if Timothy is to avoid shipwreck, he needs to battle well. And in this passage, there are a number of things that help us to avoid spiritual shipwreck. Firstly, there's this. Remember the value of godly relationship. Notice again just the tone of Timothy's letter. If you like, he's writing him a warning, or he's writing kind of strong words. As I urged you, I'm giving you this instruction but just look at the, the way that he speaks to Timothy. Timothy, my son. This, this letter is just rich with affection. and It's not unusual. That's how he started the, started the letter in verse 2. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Verse 18, Timothy, my son. I give you this instruction. instruction. When he writes to uh, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, He can say this, For this reason I'm sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who's faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. They've had 15 years together or maybe more. There's a a closeness. It's like father, like son. They've been up close and personal. Timothy knows all about Paul's teaching, about Paul's way of life, about Paul's purpose, about Paul's faith, about Paul's patience, about Paul's love, about Paul's endurance, about the persecutions that Paul has experienced and the sufferings that he's gone through. Timothy knows Paul. And Paul knows Timothy. Paul knows all about his personality. He knows all about his family. He knows all about his, his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. He knows how he came to faith. He, he knows Timothy's strengths. He knows Timothy's gifting. He knows the, promises over, the, the, the prophecies and the promises over Timothy's life. He knows God's call on his life. He knows his weaknesses. He knows his illnesses. Take a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake, you'll say later on. He knows all about his tears. He knows about his vulnerabilities. And he writes an affectionate letter to a son he loves. Kind of reminds me how Jesus was baptized. A voice from heaven spoke, this is my son. You're my son, whom whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. The father kind of affirming the son. Stay there for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. I know it's not easy, but I'm I'm for you. By the, by the Spirit, I'm with you, the Father would be saying uh, to Jesus. And, and we see this same affectionate fatherly love. Should it surprise us 
from, from Paul to Timothy. When believers drift, often through that, the bumps of, of, of discouragement, this relational feature of gospel living gets lost or forgotten. We can start to view people in spiritual authority as supervisors rather than friends. We can start to view church as an institution and not a family. And we can see God as more of a boss, a taskmaster, a pharaoh, rather than a father. Sometimes distance makes the heart grow fonder, people that we know and love. But sometimes distance can somehow make us view close friends with suspicion. And the logical thing then seems to be, again, when we've, maybe we've been through the massive crisis, we've come out the other side of it, and now it's just low-level discouragements that make us think, well, what's the point? And we're, we're just slightly, easily knocked off course. At those moments, it can, it can feel logical to withdraw. It can feel sensible to be wary and distrusting of the people that know us best and can powerfully and helpfully speak into your life. Dan, I've known you for 15 years. Keep going. Don't allow this to knock you off course. Paul is he's affirming Timothy. I know you might feel isolated right now because you're in Ephesus and you're getting all these passing comments from people. I'm not there with you in the flesh. But, Timothy, remember, we're family. I love you. We are separated at the moment, but I'm for you. I'm rooting for you. I'm praying for you. And I'm seeing the work of God in your life. You're in a hard season, but, but persevere. For the sake of the gospel, keep your life round Jesus. Heed the warning. So Paul, he, he has strong words to share. But like I say, it's on that foundation of 15 years of friendship. Not just vague acquaintance now and again, but they've really they've invested in relationship together. And so there's that, there's that challenge to us. To, to be like Paul in affirming one another. But to, to be like Timothy, don't, don't get knocked off course. Don't allow discouragement to cause you to drift away. Remember what it is to be part of a family. Remember what it is to have God as your father, not as your boss. And that's what we need to remember as well. The value of godly relationship. Also, we need to remember the value of prophecy. To fight the battle well and to avoid spiritual shipwreck, Timothy needs to recall the, promises, uh, the prophecies once made about him and to follow them. Um, we find out a little bit more what, what, Timothy, uh, what Paul means by that. He says in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 14, just a bit more information, he says, Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. And in his next letter to Timothy, he can also write, 
I think of the same event, but maybe it was a different event, of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I've taken that to mean that there was an occasion when Paul and a body of elders were gathered round Timothy and they prayed for him by laying on hands and some were sharing not just one prophecy but there were a number of prophecies that Timothy was on the receiving end of and that through those prophecies and the laying on of hands he received a gift. I think that gift is likely to be the gift of teaching. I doubt that the, prof- the prophecies were along the lines of For example, Timothy, in the year AD 72, you're going to spend 12 to 18 months in Ephesus. And uh, I don't know that it would be that specific. And I don't know that those prophecies were, were, were flattering him. Oh, Timothy, you're just such a great guy. Everything you do is just going to touch, turn to gold. Uh, we, we prophesy success over everything you do. I don't think it was building up his self-esteem. Oh, I am quite significant, aren't I? I think it was... God wants to give you the gift of teaching. Feel God's highlighting the gift of teaching. He's going to use you in different places. And sometimes it's going to be really hard, but persevere. Maybe it was along those lines and so what Paul is doing is saying look look where you are and remember the prophecies it's funny because it almost suggests that Timothy could have forgotten them that in the moment of discouragement and challenge and crisis he could forget and Paul is saying remember this that's happening right now is that which was prophesied a while ago. It's being fulfilled. I know it's hard. I know it's not easy. I know you're getting some of these passing comments and these discouragements, but look, God's at work. He prepared you ahead of time for what, you've, uh, what you're facing right now, and whilst you might not feel very strong, he has imparted a gift to you. So even if others are looking down on you, God has given you. God has imparted something to you. So, fan it into flame. Use it. Trust God to be at work in the midst of your ministry. When, we can, when, when believers drift through discouragement, it's this prophetic feature that can be lost or forgotten. We can get cloudy very quickly and lose perspective on what God has said, either to us personally or to the church as a whole. Sometimes the importance of being in community is we're in that place where somebody else can remind us. Somebody who knows you well says, but God's spoken. God's prepared you. God is with you. We can be cloudy. Sometimes we can become cynical. Oh, prophecy, that's just, it's just a way of people sharing their opinions. It's, it's just a, a sanctified way of making a few points. And just, it can just be seen as a human activity. Well, if it was that, why would Paul say, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Why? Because he knows this gift in particular, so when, when rightly exercised and when properly weighed, builds the body up in strength. It builds us up. So here it's like Paul is saying, look, God prepared and equipped you, Timothy. 
ahead of time for this moment. It wasn't just my idea. You're not just filling a gap. You're fulfilling God's purpose. And maybe that's why. Knowing the prophecies and knowing Timothy well, when Paul went to Ephesus, he realized the best thing to do, I think God's will is Timothy stays put. I think he's the man. I think he's the one. Why? Because he knows the prophecies. He knows what God has been doing in Timothy's life. Do you remember, Timothy? You know, when, when the elders were laying hands on you, God was imparting something. So again, laying on hands by faith, it's not just a human gesture of comfort or identifying with somebody. It's God imparting something. Now, maybe they prayed for Timothy because they could see. It was just really evident. The guy is such a teacher. Um, maybe God just wants to give him more. Or maybe it wasn't obvious at all, but they could see and they discerned. God wants him to have this gift. Let's pray for him. Either which way, we want to be a community that is valuing prophetic ministry, not treating it with contempt, either by getting cloudy or getting cynical. And that in friendship, we're in a position to say, what's God said? What's God said? What has God said to us? What has God said to you? That when we're praying for one another, we're, we're praying with a listening ear to what the Lord says. Not something really directive, you're going to be in Ephesus for 18 months. Not something that just strays towards flattery. You are such a nice person. I'm sure you are. But, but hearing God and sharing it, I think God is saying this. If we don't have that, we miss out on so much courage that sustains us when we might just think, what on earth am I doing here? It's, no, it's, this, this is for someone else. This isn't for me. That's what prophecy's for. It's not just for fluffy feelings. It's to help us keep going because we've heard God on stuff. And thirdly, to avoid spiritual shipwreck, remember the value of a good conscience. Hymenaeus and Alexander rejected this. They, they pushed it away. A strong, definite effort to reject having a good conscience. They pushed it away, and so they stopped holding on to the truth, and shipwreck was the result. You can't just put up the handbrake on a boat. The waves, the wind, will bring a certain momentum. And for Hymenaeus and Alexander, they, I guess either they didn't want to or they couldn't anyway. They were just carried into the shipwreck because they'd ignored lots of warnings. Nobody plans to shipwreck their boat. Nobody leaves harbour thinking, I hope we crash. Nobody, uh, shipwreck rarely just happens without any warning. It happens by small compromises. It happens by ignoring warnings. It happens by assuming shipwreck will only happen to other people. It would never happen to me. And perhaps the uh, most famous uh, shipwreck that we might be aware of, uh, the Titanic. Maybe the captain had false confidence because so many people have been saying, this boat's unsinkable. I mean, other boats have sunk, like the Mary Rose and whatever. 
but the Titanic can't sink. So you can go as fast as you want, as close to the icebergs as you want, and you'll be okay. Because you're the Titanic. I think, no, what a nonsense. It's not, one, it's not wonderfully happy moments to consider the consequences of drifting. It's not, it's not really joy, joyous to consider, maybe there are people that you know who at one time would seem to have been walking strong in their faith, but maybe just behind the scenes they were, they were making compromises and there came some critical point in their life and they decided to turn away. They decided the church wasn't for them. They decided that maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead and they rejected it. How does that happen? Well, it happens by lots and lots of compromises. It happens by ignoring lots and lots of warnings. Paul is saying to Timothy, don't do that. Don't be like that. Now, with these discouragements, with the challenges you're facing, with this task that seems to be stretching out before you, you don't even know how long you're going to be having to do this and stay in Ephesus. It's almost like the recipe is there just to think, oh, do you know what? I'm tired and I can't be bothered. Does it really matter if... There are so many people who agree with Hymenaeus. Maybe I should just adopt my preaching to suit. No, Timothy. Don't do it. Don't just think it won't happen to me. I can handle it. I've been this way before. I've been sailing for 15 years. I I know how to sense what the waves are doing and the wind is doing. No, remember the value of a good conscience. Sometimes faced with a massive crisis, spiritual attack or full-on confrontation of some sorts, we have the grace to keep going and God gets us through. Sometimes it's the subtle stuff that can knock us off our course or knock us off orbit. Let's be a people who are valuing the godly relationship that means we can speak with affection into one another's lives Remembering the value of, of, of prophecies, prophetic ministry, and just simply, personally, maintaining and developing a good conscience with our life focusing in on his word. That's kind of what an orbit is. I don't understand very much about astrophysics. It looks very, it looks very graceful, doesn't it? Effectively, what the, what the earth is doing is always falling towards the sun, but never quite reaching it, obviously. If it was going slower, it would. If it went faster, it would just fly off. But it's like it's constantly just orientated towards the sun. It it can't get away from it. If it's got any sense, it doesn't want to get away from it, because there's no life further out. This, you know, I want to be free. I want to be free to go where I want. Well, that might look freedom, but what would this planet encounter if it was suddenly free from the sun? Frozen in a week. Dead. Lump of rock. We have life by staying in orbit, almost always constantly falling in on our wonderful Saviour and the word of truth that he's given to us. The gospel, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Let's keep our eyes on that.